Hello, thanks for checking out Covenant's podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. Nobody will accuse me of nepotism if I hire them to be my next music directors in my next church. That's my dream, one of them. Oh, man. So thankful for this moment to share with them on the stage. <clears throat> and their mom feels the same way. And uh, it may be our last time together on this platform, but it won't be our last time. And everyone, uh, that song blends together uh, the different times that Jesus received an extravagant display of emotion and devotion. Um, and I want to focus on that because that passage has been the most dear to me of all passages in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> I thought about that. I think it became dear to me, the woman approaching Jesus uh, in a room that was hostile is often the way people experience the church if they're from the outside. I want to read, I want to read a passage uh, about this. Uh, and you'll note there are a few times this happens to Jesus. Uh, I think he was uh, anointed in this extravagant way um, at least two times. I think it's at least three. The first time was the one that mainly the song talks about, this woman who was a woman of ill repute, uh, and she burst into the home of a Pharisee who was having this honorary banquet, thinking he was doing Jesus a big favor by <clears throat> allowing Jesus to come to him, his house. And she just broke through all the barriers, broke through the hostility, gave this incredible act of worship, and then Jesus rebuked the Pharisee so that sinners can't run to Jesus unless Pharisees are rebuked. And it's such a beautiful passage. And the first time I opened that passage up was in, a, in Bloomington, Indiana, in Reed Beck dorm at about 11 o'clock at night, an evangelistic Bible study. And I remember getting my suite mates to come to that Bible study, and the rules were they got to say whatever they wanted about the text. And I photocopied the text <clears throat> of this story. And I remember uh, one of the suite mates, Daryl, just saying, I have gone to church off and on a lot of times, but I never... I never thought that was who God was. And I think like that is the task of the church, right? To, to manifest that Jesus Christ is the face of God and he wants sinners to run to him. And he will rebuke anything, religious establishment, Pharisee, what have you, that gets in the way of that. And that's really been the, the devotion of my life to that principle. So uh, this is a farewell address. I've only done this once before. <laughs> in 32 years of being a pastor. How do you summarize 18 years? Uh, it's 18 years of where together what we've sought to do is pour ourselves out as an act of devotion to Jesus Christ. Um, and I think uh, over these 18 years, I can just attest that I don't think there, and my kids might complain about this, and my wife sometimes, but I don't think there's hardly been a day where there hasn't been some thought or concern or pressure or love for this church over that time. And that has been my privilege and that honor over these 18 years. All aspects, the heartaches and the triumphs. And, and farewells remind us of endings. Um, endings are coming for all of us. Sometimes they're surprising ones. This, one, this one's timing is surprising to me even. But its reality was always certain that there'd be a farewell. And a pastor's farewell reminds all of us that we all have limited time both to hear Jesus and also to tell people about Jesus. We have limited times to hear about Jesus and limited times to tell people about Jesus. 
So there's a few farewells in the Bible. I mean, Paul gave one to the Ephesian church after just two years that was really emotional. I was like, Paul, I have 16 more years on you. But um, in that one, in Acts 20, Paul defined, and I just want to spend a moment to define the job description of a pastor, at least a key part of it, where Paul said, my job is to hold back nothing that was profitable, but to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. So I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. Uh, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And I've joyfully accepted that responsibility. To the best of my knowledge, I have never preached something that put me crossways with God. And I have never preached anything uh, or withheld something that God wanted me to say. To the best of my ability, uh, I have sought to fulfill that role in office faithfully. And also, as part of that, uh, what sermon's complete without a quote for mom? My mom always says, uh, old age is not for sissies. And I've been telling my mom uh, lately, I've been saying, preaching is not for sissies either, mom. Uh, and so I joyfully accept the consequences I have sometimes borne, they've been small, uh, but for preaching the whole counsel of God that sometimes put me crossways with people. If I didn't accept that, I would not be a legitimate preacher of God. So I praise God and I give him the glory for that grace. To the best of my knowledge, I was faithful to the call of God because I don't work for you, I work for God. And he'll have the final say and evaluation over that at the final judgment that I answer for, not you. And you'll answer for the things I said maybe that you struggled with. But preaching and pastoring is at best a kind of pouring out. The Christian life your Christian life is a kind of pouring out. And I, I want to just a couple times, um, there were times when I knew that being faithful would bring unwanted conflict and consequences. And I want you to know that I don't regret any of those. Nor do I regret anything I ever taught or wrote or preached or represented while I was your pastor. Uh, some of you may know this and others of you really don't because I didn't talk about it. But a blog I wrote after George Floyd's atrocious murder got picked up by an alt-right racist organization and they ran it to do what they do best, to race bait people and stir up conflict. Sadly, some white supremacists picked up on this. They researched where the author, namely me, lived and they began, and, and where he pastored, and they began sending streams of emails and even menacing voicemails. Poor administrative staff, Christine, Kim, uh, Joanna, um, Tracy, received some of those. And some of those emails were so menacing and threatening violence that we had to turn them over to the police. Uh, and uh, my kids were sometimes afraid when the Amazon man came to deliver a package, uh, just because of some of the, the voicemails we encountered. And I just want to say, in the midst of that, and I say this for my wife and I, and um, we just felt so thankful and awed that we were counted worthy for suffering a little something in the name of Christ. And I want to also just say that other people found that blog, and I heard from people in government, I heard from many other local pastors thanking me for modeling a degree of courage, and in particular, I heard from a black pastor in another city that I've never even met telling me that I wrote as he felt and I had eased his racial pain in a time of racial strife. I'm so grateful for that privilege. And sometimes the word of God clashes against all our sensibilities, but the aim is always to receive the word of God in its fullness because God won't share his glory with another. And it's, it's never about trying to get God to take sides, whether that be 
on the left or right, because God isn't interested in any of that. God is not interested in taking sides. God's interested in taking over. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no other deliverer that we need. And Christ crucified is the message that will deliver a nation, and it's the only place a nation can look. And no man is a good preacher. This is a, a quote from A.W. Tozer, who I like. He says this, no man is a good preacher who's not willing to lay his future on the line every time he expounds the word. He must let his job and his reputation ride on each and every sermon, or he has no right to think that he stands in the prophetic tradition. He says, when the pastor is facing his congregation on Sunday morning, he better not think, he dare not think of the effect his sermon may have on his job, his salary, or his future relation to the church. Let him worry about tomorrow, and he becomes a mere hireling and no true shepherd of the sheep. So Paul said that he had done that by God's grace. I say, by God's grace, to the best of my ability, I believe I've done that. And I give him the glory, not me. I give him the glory. And thank you because you've welcomed that. And that's what's made this church strong. Paul also said to the Ephesian church that he had coveted none of their silver and gold. Well, he didn't live in Bucks County. <laughs> um, but I count my Jeep as nicer than any of your cars for some reason, so there's that. I'm thankful, especially for God's grace in giving me my loving wife, who we've walked in loving and faithful union together in 32 years. We're still crazy about each other. I don't know why she's crazy about me, but I'm so grateful for how marriage preaches a sermon also. And I can't imagine life or ministry without my wife, Liz, and I'm so thankful for the opportunities you've given us to grow and learn and live together. I praise you for her. Our Pella talk is about Hebrew conjugation sometimes, or what she's discovering as she opens up her Hebrew text and all this stuff. Seminary graduate, great thing. We, talk, we always talk about theology and God. We don't talk about people. And that has been a balm to my soul. But now we get into this text that I asked Naomi and Josh to bring us. Ministry effectiveness, and again, and again is about allowing people to who don't know Jesus, to run to Jesus. And all of that is really about abiding in the vine, and that is all basically through us, not in us. And this alabaster box presents us with, with a room, Jesus, Pharisees, that was busted in by the woman who, who really got it more than any of them. And again, this breaking of the alabaster bar happens more than once. The first time was this sinful woman who stunned everybody. But then um, Lazarus's sister wanted to give a tribute to Jesus. And um, she did it. And remember, it wasn't a Pharisee who criticized her. It was Judas who criticized her. who said this money, because it was over a year's salary, could have been given to the poor uh, but she did it because Jesus had just raised her brother, and she wanted to do it as an act of incredible tribute to Jesus. And from where I read the gospel, this is recorded in every single gospel, this alabaster jar. And Jesus said, everywhere the gospel is preached, what this woman did unto me shall be told. And he said that Mary, Mary, remember, she was the one where Martha was in the kitchen, busy. Um, and Mary was the one who sat at Jesus' feet, which was a radical stance. Do you know that only people training to be rabbis could sit at a rabbi's feet? And a woman, women were not allowed to learn like this. So Jesus is just turning gender roles upside down in this way. So Mary has been sitting at Jesus' feet. 
feet. And so she understands the way to thank Jesus is to anoint him for the burial, for the death that he is about to die. And she's the only one who gets it. Uh, and, and so this is reported in, in the Gospels, but I think Mary is emulating what this, the first woman did, this woman who knew her desperate sin and her desperate need. And I'm just amazed that this, uh, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. This is in, the, in Matthew's account. Jesus says to the woman, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. And I just think that is such a beautiful picture of grace. Um, and it's so important. I think one of the things in addition to preaching the word of God, the role of a pastor and a church and leaders is to, to fiercely defend a gospel of grace in the church. To fiercely defend a gospel of grace culture in the church. Lots of churches preach grace. But not many churches have a culture of grace. You know, I love our vision and values, but you know, if you look at churches, almost every church has something pretty similar to our vision and values. Almost every single one. I, I know that was a question Rob had when he was, you know, he's like, uh, he, he watched, one thing we really liked when he interviewed Rob, such a good hire, dear friend, but was that he and Darcy watched all the a series of sermons on our vision and values. But while he resonated with them to his core, one thing he knew is that that's what a lot of churches say. That's what the majority of churches say. The question he had, and he asked a lot of questions, was do, is the church really willing to live it out? And you know what, that's the question non-believers ask too. They say, well, yeah, I've heard that you're about grace, or I hear that you're about, can I bring my stuff? Can I be authentic? Can I bring my struggles, my conflicts, my doubts? And that's what I'd say in terms of holding back nothing that's profitable. I've defended the gospel of grace in our culture and our pastoral context as a church. Never perfectly, and it's never perfect in a church. That's why we need the grace that we're giving out, right? But to the best of my ability, I've led us to have a culture of grace, which means we treat people warmly. We have an atmosphere of acceptance. We believe the Holy Spirit is already at work in everybody who crosses the threshold or drives onto our property, and we want to honor the work of God that has already taken place in these people and to clearly, gently, and even fiercely, with kindness, bring them to fullness of life in Christ. That, that's the role of shepherding. I've seen shepherding abused, so I actually prefer not to call myself a shepherd. I prefer to call myself an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. Because Psalm 23 teaches all of us, the Lord is my shepherd, and if he is your shepherd, he's the one who gives you everything you need, and then all you need is other people to remind you to get under the care of the chief shepherd of your soul and to walk alongside you and ask, what do you hear Jesus saying? How is God working? How are you evaluating that? Hey, could I speak into that? Um, are you confident that Jesus has spoken this into your life? But it's been my aim to create a culture here that is not the culture in Luke 7 where the woman had to walk into a room that was denigrating her that didn't love her, that communicated disdain, judgment, and superiority and the like to her. A room that was dominated by Pharisees. Pharisees make conclusions about people without conversations. And we all can do it. My heart can make up so many rules that are not in the Bible, you would be astounded. <laughs> 
And because I know my own heart, I know your heart, I know what can happen in a church, we can make up rules that are not in the Bible, and we can make up issues the Bible doesn't even speak to, to create a kind of council culture to push people away. And Jesus wants sinners to run to him with abandonment, pouring out their lives. And for that to happen, Jesus has to rebuke the roadblocks set up by Pharisees. And if a church is going to be the movement I've seen here where sinners can run to and find Jesus, then we have to rebuke our inner Pharisee. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to get close to God because of God's people. Anybody ever resonate with that? Oh boy, it's, it's, it's hard to praise God in a, if, you're, if you've ever been in a room where people don't like you. And if you've ever been in a room where people look down on you, have malice towards you, and again, that's how some people experience church, and we've got to We've got to startle people with the incredible grace and kindness of Jesus. And that's why this woman, she didn't look at the Pharisee in Luke 7. She ran straight to Jesus, fixed on him, and began to weep and wash his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Um, and, and look, we're all inner Pharisees. We're all recovering Pharisees. But some people can turn into out-and-out Pharisees. And if we don't rebuke the Pharisee, if we don't rebuke the partial little voice in all of us, but the soured person who undermines grace by being a Pharisee, it will ruin the work, the renewing work, where sinners are redeemed and transformed. So I pray we're always a church that polices itself. You know, uh, my personal email is hawk for grace, and part of what that means is, if you want to see where I will do battle, I will do battle when someone gets between a person and God a person in their honest pursuit of God, a person who is doing the beautiful thing that God has called them to do, though it may look outrageous to us. And I love this text because the, the mentality of the Pharisee, and look, I've, I've felt this sometimes, is when, when he says, hey man, this is gonna get out of hand. This could get wild, this could get chaotic. And I say, that's a byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit. When it's starting to get out of control is when I'm starting to get excited that God is really there. Don't be afraid of the passionate devotion that the Spirit of God works in people who are newly brought to Christ. I heard somebody say that, you know, churches are wired one or two ways. There are churches that are wired where people go to church to learn about God. And that can be a very good thing. We love God with our minds. But it says there are other churches that are wired where they go to church to kiss God. They go to church to just love on God. And I love that in this passage, Jesus says she's done something beautiful out of love. She loves much because she knows how much she's been forgiven. And so if you run to Jesus and you pour yourself out for him, the world will say, who do you think you are? Or the world will say, that's a waste. doesn't make sense. But Jesus will say, you have done a beautiful thing to me. And loving Jesus, it is the wellspring of the most beautiful things that have taken place on the planet. And the love of Jesus is the wellspring. Knowing your love for Jesus, knowing the cost of your forgiveness is the wellspring of every beautiful thing that's been done here. Beautiful things grow out of an awareness of our need for desperate grace that required the death of the Son of God. The beautiful thing that was really a horrific thing until Jesus took up the cross and made the most horrifying thing, the most beautiful thing, so that now, fellowship with the Holy God is a place where you can let your hair down, let your tears flow, and pour out your love. And, and, and the, the chaos of the force of love 
When that's unleashed, the gospel has credibility. And so I want to just celebrate a few examples. And they're just a few. I, I, I'm not able to even balance this, so don't look for absolute balance in this, but they, I, I want you to just see the trajectory here because I think of examples I've seen that have so inspired me with the beauty of Jesus through you, through and in this place. And I've heard Jesus say, you have done a beautiful thing. I think of the person recently who told me they were living out of sexual brokenness, but they gave the gospel not only a hearing, but they opened up their heart to the reality of Jesus. And then they made radical changes and sacrifices in their life just to please Jesus. I, as pastor, had a front row seat to that. And I heard Jesus say to this person, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. I saw actually many in this situation, but I saw a teenage couple who strayed sexually, who got pregnant, who considered abortion but chose life, and then even chose marriage and parenting. And to them, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. They're champions to me. I know someone who tells me this. He hasn't even told his family this. He says, I came to covenant a secret atheist. We'd always gone to Bible church, but I lost my faith a long time ago. And I knew if I shared that with my family, it would just result in arguments and they would disown me. So I just silently lived as an atheist. But then we started coming here. And I encountered something that upended my skepticism. And Jesus began to unravel my secret atheism and to expose my doubts to greater doubts about those doubts so that now I could believe. And now I'm no longer a secret atheist. I've resigned from being a secret atheist. And I believe in Jesus Christ. And to all the people and all the interactions and to the vibe in the cafe and the welcome that enabled the person to come in and experience something different. Jesus says to all of you, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the parents who've never entrusted a child into the care of someone else, but they come into this place and they see a children's ministry that assures them that there are loving arms, caring, welcoming, tending to that child so mom and dad can relax enough to sit to experience worship, to have the Spirit of God operate on the heart, to all those people who've served in that ministry, making it happen and sing, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the person who encountered a woman who was locked in an abusive relationship that was draining her life, who saw the telltale signs and urged her, see a professional counselor, but continued to walk with her as she broke free from that abuse, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the radiant witness of a woman who leads exercise and fitness classes, who even faced down cancer and difficult treatment and brought so many of her neighbors and friends to covenant that I've lost count, Jesus says to that person, you have done a beautiful thing to me. To every one of you who have brought anyone, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the deacons and deaconesses, who met people who came to Covenant's doorstep, but also would pursue them to places like the Colonial Inn, 
the downtrodden, the discouraged, the ones who had burned through so many resources and sought to pour into their lives and invest in people as they found them, a judgment-free zone. Jesus says, not you've done a beautiful thing to them, but he says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the elder who sat with a young man who told his story of breaking his marriage vows and had come clean to his wife and wondered if it would ever be restored, who gently guided and cared for this man, seeing his marriage encouraged and healed, Jesus says to that man, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the almost literally resurrected former opioid and heroin addict who was saved by naloxone to reverse death and extreme opioid overdose, who then blazed a path to Jesus and a ministry to help other people in the same bondage find not only freedom from drugs, but freedom in Christ. Jesus Christ says to that person and everybody who was on the team around that person, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. When Asian American members of our community brought to our attention, they were suffering because of racist terms and blame, and people in this congregation wrote letters of advocacy and used their voices to bring about change. Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the pastor of another church who attended our Saturday service so he can preach on Sundays, who thought racial reconciliation was something he never should have to bother with, but opened up his heart as the scriptures were opened up and now sees this as an implication of the gospel that he is ministering out of. Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the person who heard about Peter Knetz's vision for Don Bashawa and the orphans they were feeding under trees, that he wanted some property, he wanted a church built, and he wanted some orphan homes. And when they heard that on an orphan Sunday lunch that Peter said, well, I think it'll take around $70,000. And this person went home, prayed about it, and walked into my study two days later and said, my husband and I think this needs to happen. Here's the check. Jesus says, and to all the people who gave after that to make that happen, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. To the person who poured their lives into the lives of students, man, our family so benefited from this. When our teens were growing up, individuals that pour their life into the lives of students, sharing Jesus over years and many years, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing unto me. Um, to people who prayed so fervently that sometimes they're misunderstood, but kept praying and seeking and freely worship, Jesus says, you've done a beautiful thing unto me. To the family who already had to drive a minibus, but decided just to extend their table further. And while I was preaching on what God said our duty was for people fleeing from countries for their life, they, unbeknownst to me, had taken into their hearts and home, a young woman who fled here for her life with a 14-month-old baby. Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing to me. To all the staff members I've been so privileged to work with, both prior to today, those different teams, and today's staff, those who give themselves in ways that are hard to explain unless you labor full-time in ministry, Jesus says, you have done a beautiful thing to me. To each person who has poured out their life in some capacity, some measure, to foster the life of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in this place, Jesus Christ says to you, and I hope you feel it and hear it, what does he say? You have done a beautiful thing unto me. 
Think of the diversity of all of those stories, and we could be here till next Tuesday if we were to share testimony. I know of no organization in our community that can produce even a fraction of these life-changing transformations, because there is no organization like that. That's why I call you and I call me to pour ourselves out for Jesus into the form of his church so that the church can be the place where beautiful things happen. And the most beautiful thing is what Jesus did. The most beautiful thing is the one who literally, not just figuratively, poured out his life through that wrenchingly horrible death, that through that beautiful thing, that horrible thing that became a beautiful thing, all beautiful things are birthed out of Jesus' beautiful thing. And we say to Jesus, Jesus, all of this was birthed from you. All of this was birthed from your beautiful sacrifice. And we give you all, all of the honor, all of the glory, all of the praise, and we delight that you delight to lead us in your train and triumph. That what was beautiful for our redemption, Lord, you've clothed us to make it the theme of our life. And Lord, may this place May my person, my voice, but every voice, every person occupying a place here devote themselves to this movement that manufactures out of grace the beautiful things that accompany the gospel. Wherever the gospel is given out, it has credibility because this is the way the gospel is lived out. And may we all here at the end, Jesus say to us, your life poured out is a beautiful thing that you have done unto me. We're going to gather our hearts. The last time my privilege to lead you in the Lord's Supper. That is the place where the most beautiful thing, Jesus' death, is set forth for us. So as you take that cup, and i got to go get mine, so... Somebody needs to get there so they can get it. <laughs> and Jesus Christ said of this, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed the forgiveness of sins. This privilege belongs only to those who have seen the beautiful thing Christ has done and have said, I pour my life out. I rely upon the grace that you have poured out there. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is for you. If you have not yet come to Jesus, use this as a moment to come to him. And then prepare yourself to partake. But together, this is the most beautiful thing that motivates all the beauty in our life. And Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And in the same way Jesus takes the cup, literally the pouring out of his life and blood, and said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins of many. Drink in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the beauty 
that has entered our life through Jesus. We thank you for the beauty that you pour into us and that you want to be expressed through us. And Lord, we just give you the adoration, the love of our hearts. As we consider and welcome the magnitude of the forgiveness and grace that has been poured out in our life, we pray that you would open up wider the outflow so that our lives will be devoted to the beauty of our Savior's name. In his name we pray. Amen.